Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostess, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. Hey, thanks for joining me again this week. I realized last week that every single week I say, hey guys, we're back. And like, I don't know, I have like the same intro line. I'm trying to drop it. I'm trying to diversify the way I speak. So anyways, I'm really excited to, that's what I say every week. I say, I'm really excited to, but I actually am really excited. I just landed in Vancouver today. I'm been awake for 24 hours almost. And today I'm introducing probably my second ever male guest. Woo, woo. Woo. <laughs> you can say something. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> you just love me hanging. No, I'm really excited. We are IG friends. We just hung out for the afternoon, had dinner, chilled out in Langley, BC. But please welcome, do we call you John or Jonathan? You just call me John. 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 John Lupin. John Lupin. I said that right? You did. You and your accents, you're now making me have an accent. Yeah. That's how it works. You are known as the Poetry Bandit. Yes, ma'am. So give me the goods. Like, tell me how the heck you got to be who you are, where you are. Take your time with this. Sure. This is your little origin story, your little intro, and then we'll get into like the meat and the goods of everything else. But I want you to kind of like dive into how this all came to be. Well, it doesn't have a happy start. That's for sure. So one thing that a lot of my followers know about me is that I'm an alcoholic in recovery. So I'm almost five years sober now. I'll be five years sober in July of this year. So that's like maybe a few months away. A lot of people don't like it when you plan ahead for your sobriety because you just take it one day at a time. But anyway, when it was 2014 and it was the year I had several things going on and it was a really terrible year for my drinking career. So Or my best year, depending on how you look at it. So during that year, we had, my wife at the time had a mental health issue Mm -hmm. and we were working through that and it uh, was going terribly. And then our son was diagnosed with autism that year as well. And that was really hard because 
there's a grieving process that you go through. For right? sure. Right? You, yeah. you think about your child doing this, that, and the other thing as they grow up, and now that has to change. We had two other children, and just keeping all of that, you know, I was the one that had to step up and take care of things and take yeah. care of her and the, and the kids. And I had, a, I had a job with a very prestigious insurance brokerage in this province, and I was running a whole program for wineries at the time. So really good alcoholic, I decided about 2007, 2008, I created a winery insurance program. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I created this incredible program and it did very well. We started off with one client and we ended up with, before I left that company, we had about 140. Holy, how many wineries are there? There's probably well over 200 in the province okay. of BC. Yeah. So we had a good chunk of the marketplace and I worked that program really hard, but that also meant I was on the road a lot. And it fed my addiction. Yeah, I, I didn't start off drinking crazy in my life. I drank like a lot of normal teenagers did. And, and in my 20s, I didn't really drink a lot while I went to university. And just when life got difficult, it opened up a door. And I had money. I had a job. Mm -hmm. I had, was making six figures. I had a house. I had two cars, three kids, beautiful wife. All that was there, right? Mm -hmm. And I felt like I deserved this, right? But near the end, around 2014, as all these things started to come to a head, I was drinking about two, three bottles of wine every day. Wow. Every day. Wow. And that did not include beer or hard liquor. So oh my gosh. I would drink a bottle on my own sometimes at lunches. So I liquid lunched a lot with clients. How did you manage? Like, <laughs> what was your work life with that? It was like very you were pretty, stressful. Okay. Yeah, like, were you I, hiding it really well? I was hiding it extremely okay. well. Okay. Um, so the company I worked at gave me a lot of freedoms because I'd worked very hard to get to where I was. Right. And I had a lot of freedom to come and go as I pleased. I had two or three people that assisted me with a very large book of business. And it took me to all sorts of places. And I was very thankful for all the people I got to meet. But I'm telling you, I would sometimes, I'd pop into a restaurant at 11 o'clock and I'd start drinking and I would leave at two and I would drive. And I was stupid. I never got a DUI. I never wow. got in an accident. Nothing really crazy ever happened that made me go, oh, hey, you might have a problem until I crashed my car in 2012. And then I thought, huh, well, that road was just constructed poorly. Mm. So it wasn't my fault or the one and a half bottles of wine. And, and you didn't even get a DOI then? No, I blew. And the cop decided he, I don't know what, like, I believe in a higher power. And I believe that my God was with me that night and sort of like, I don't know. It was amazing. But this cop, he drove me back to my hotel. And it was only my car that was hurt. I didn't damage any property. Yeah. Yeah, He brought me back to my hotel and he said, you know, you can come and get your license in the morning. You might want to have a look at your drinking problem. And I just sort of scoffed at him under my breath. And I said, thank you. And then after he left, I had the hotel manager bring me like a 40 ounce glass of wine. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I got drunk in my hotel room. And then the next morning I told everybody what happened. But that was still, I still went on drinking. Like it, it yeah. just it maybe slowed me down for about a week. And then I picked back up again, right where I left off. 
And that's what happens when you drink uncontrollably, when it has a hold on you, mm. you don't see these things. And mm-hmm. no one can tell you that you have a drinking problem. That cop was one of the first people that ever told me that you might want to have a look at that. And uh, a week later, I had totally forgotten about him. Totally entrenched in my own little world. And then in 2013, I went on a trip and I have no idea how I got there, but I ended up in this very seedy bar in Asoyas. <laughs> Where's that? <laughs> Asoyas is in the interior, and there are a lot of wineries there. So I was there a lot. Oh, that, is that in Canada? I feel That's, so dumb. It's oh, in Canada. in Canada. It's in British Columbia. <laughs> you just patted me on the knee. <laughs> oh, she's oh, so you cute. Oh, you darling little thing. Oh, my God. I don't know. Um, you just said a word. I thought it was like somewhere so in the Caribbean. <laughs> is in <laughs> the Caribbean. It gets hot there. I'm so sorry. But Asoyas is a beautiful a town. Story, Look it up. And I'm like, <laughs> it's a beautiful place. But I ended up in this bar there and I followed, turned out I followed this wedding party. I had a bottle of wine of myself in this restaurant and I followed this wedding party to this bar and I blacked out. I decided I, it was time to go back to the hotel. So I walked back to the hotel and it's about a 20 minute drive. Okay. From this bar. So that's bar. pretty dang far. Yeah. Through deserts filled with rattlesnakes. Oh my god. Fire ants. Coyotes, whatever, you know, crazy things. And I made it back and I remember somebody poking me with a broom and wondering why this maid was in my bedroom. And so I freaked out and this lady says, sir, are you okay? And I'm like, of course I'm okay. Get out of my hotel room. And she's like, you're not in your hotel room, sir. I put my glasses on and I'm like, I'm not even at the right hotel. (gasps) And I'm like laying outside of somebody's doorway (laughs) and These are war stories, and they're very good for me to tell because it's part of my story. Yeah. But I couldn't find my keys, my wallet, my phone, nothing. I couldn't find anything. But did I think I had a problem with drinking then? No. No. Still no. Still no. How many incidents like this were there? Near the end, between 2012 and 2014, there were about five or six of these kinds of things. Okay. There was another time when I was in uh, Vancouver with my, at the time, my wife, and we were celebrating our wedding anniversary, and I totally, I totally shat the bed on the whole thing. Oh man! Yeah, I even stood outside a hotel room window, was ready to jump, <gasps> and I just ruined everything. Oh like, no! Like you just drink that hard all the time, you don't even realize when you black out and you start to do stupid. Yeah, stuff. yeah. So there were a few more incidents like that, and then finally she said to me, "Who's and she? I your got wife? My my wife at the okay. time." And she said, uh, you got to do something. Like, I came home one day, no one could find me. I was blacked out in Vancouver in a really nice Italian suit, carrying a laptop. No one could find me. Oh, my gosh. Came home. It was about one in the morning. I had a piece of pizza in my suit pocket. I don't even know how that got there. And she said, you got to quit drinking. And I took the piece of pizza out of my suit pocket. And I said, I'll look at that in the morning. (laughs) What an Don't ass. Don't want to laugh. Like, oh, you can laugh. It's fine. That's such a, that's, that's an interesting, like, <laughs> I just want to be in your head in that moment being like, this, <laughs> this seems like a good idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea how I got home either, but my car was in the driveway. So I'm like, either I got somebody to drive me home. Yeah. Or I. I it's that blacked out for you. You oh, really yeah. don't remember. Don't remember at all. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's it, wild. It was pretty wild. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's take a pause to talk about one of today's sponsors, which I think is a really important one for us to be talking about right now, which is Liquid IV Feeding Life's Adventures, even if that adventure right now is at home. And here's the thing. I was actually just having a conversation with my mom and I noticed her voice sounded a little off and I was like, hey, are you feeling okay? And she immediately was like, I just don't think I've been drinking enough water. And it hit me. I don't think I've been drinking enough water either, which is where liquid IV is actually really complementary into our lifestyles right now, even when we might be forgetting to drink our water because we're in entirely new environments, entirely new schedule, and we're having to create new routines. So let me break down what liquid IV is. Because Liquid IV is an easy, healthy solution for dehydration. One stick in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two to three times faster and more efficiently, meaning you don't actually have to drink as much water because this is going to give you two to three times that hit that you need. Plus, it has the added bonus of vitamin C, B3, B5, B6, and B12. And it is the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. But there is also some really incredible things they do as well with Liquid IV. They're on a mission to change the world. They've donated more than 2.5 million servings to date to places all over the world in need of more hydration, which is a really great way to kind of do good and feel good yourself and do it for others as well. So like I said, Liquid IV can actually provide the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water. It has five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange and as much potassium as a banana. It's also non-GMO, vegan, free, of gluten, dairy, and soy with clean ingredients. And with so many different flavors you can go for, you will really enjoy a more elevated experience away from water. If you're someone like me that doesn't somehow like the taste of water, it adds that experience that makes you actually enjoy it. So right now you can go and get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code papaya at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order on Liquid IV's website. Just go to liquidiv.com and enter promo code papaya and save 25% off. Don't wait and you can start properly hydrating today. Now let's get back to the show. As a parent, do you ever wish someone could just whisper some realistic and trustworthy support in your ear and not make you feel awful for not having all the answers? Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, developmental psychologist, parent educator, clinical professor, and I'm a mom. My goal is to make your parenting journey less overwhelming and a lot more joyful. Please join me every Friday for new episodes of Raising Good Humans. So the next day I told her, yeah, this was around Christmas 2013. I said, okay, I'll do better. Yeah. But still... That whole year, 2014, I kept failing like that. Mm-hmm. Just I would get a few months in or six weeks yeah, and I would fail. I would get miserable. I'd have a pity party. I even went to one recovery meeting. I went in, I walked in, I walked out. It wasn't wow. for me. Yeah, I just didn't, couldn't, couldn't do it. I, I don't know what was missing. You know, I would go to church, talk to someone who believed in God, friends, family, like nothing helped, mm. just nothing. One day, my, I don't know what to call her. Like, I would just call her my ex-wife. Yeah. Because that's where she is now. Came home with a typewriter. And she said, I'm going to start writing. And I'm going to start sharing my poetry on Instagram. Just like this poet, Tyler Not Gregson. She got a book from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her sister gave it to her. 
for her birthday. And she said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Cause I think I could do this. Mm. I'm like, cool, go for it. And I didn't really give it a second thought. And then I saw how it affected her. Like she was struggling with her own mental health issue at the right. time. And she was just coming out of it while I was trying to get sober and trying to be there for her and the boy and the other two girls. And it was, I would just sat there and I just, I would just be miserable and I'd be angry at her because I couldn't go to the liquor store. Right. I right. just felt like right. someone was holding me back right, yeah. from being who I was. And this is, this was me, but it wasn't me. It was just the total opposite of who I was. Right. I used to write all the time. I was a musician. I wrote music. I wrote her poems. I, I wrote a couple of fantasy novels. I wrote a couple of screenplays. I was so creative before. Wow. And then I lost all of that when I started drinking. Right. Right, so you're numbing out. You were just numbing out. I was numbing out. Yeah, so exactly. you're losing all of the, all of the buzz and all the creativity when you're just doing that. Yeah, I just sit down and watch TV and drink two bottles of wine in a night. Wow. And I would hide the other bottle after she went to bed. So there was a lot of lying that without you know you you lose the ability to trust somebody when you find empty bottles of wine laying around. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. So she started writing, and I was like, wow, this is really changing you. And she's like, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm meeting some cool people. You mm -hmm. should try it because you're miserable and you're driving me crazy. Mm. And I'm like, cool. I'll give it a shot. So I started an Instagram account, October, 2014. I called myself the hopeless loser yeah. because that's what I felt like. Oh, wow. <laughs> and if you search that hashtag, you might find a couple of my old emo poems on there. That's hilarious. And I just started to write and I started, it just came back. And I started to write about how miserable I felt and mm. how sad I was all the time. And I, I would write about a woman, but really I was writing about wine. And, and Wow, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just obsessed. You had romanticized it almost. Oh, totally. Interesting. Yeah, I had replaced this female figurehead in my life that should have been my wife at the mm. time with a bottle of wine. Wow. I, and I think that That's happens. So, that, oh, but I love that you said that though, because I think that a lot of times we don't recognize addiction having any sort of emotional connection. It seems like just a numb out. Yes. But the fact is a lot of people numb out with relationships too. Absolutely. So it, it does in a way, it adds up a little bit more in my head as I'm trying to understand something that I clearly don't understand when you address it that way. Mm -hmm. Like I can understand that. That's really interesting. Now I'm is your poetry still that way? Do you still talk about it like it's wine or is I, it, has it I changed? I don't, but what I started to do is as she started to gain a following and she had a couple of different names at the time. She called herself the mute poet because she felt like she was voiceless. Mm. And I feel really bad about that now because I realized she felt voiceless in the marriage. Being married to an alcoholic is not an easy thing. Yeah. I was never abusive. I was never angry at her. We never fought in front of the kids. It was just a silent drifting apart. Right. And uh, it's really hard for me not to cry about it or get really emotional about it because I feel like where we are today, seven months into our separation, uh, you know, you you look back and you go, wow, this is this is probably all my fault. But, I can imagine that would be yeah, difficult, especially- It's not something to drink about though, but it's no, something to acknowledge and to address. For and, sure. And that's all part of the journey. But I remember meeting a few people who I am still friends with today on Instagram mm -hmm. at the time who said to me in 2014, they said, you got to change your name. You're a really good writer, but you got to change the name because you're not hopeless and you're right. not a loser. Yeah. And one of those ladies, her name is Laura McCowan, and she just wrote a book. It's going to be a bestseller. We are the luckiest. And she's leading a sober movement in the wow. States. And 
she and I met at the same time going through the same thing. She sobered up a few months earlier than I did. Okay. But she was there for me. She was one of the first people that said, hey, I know what you're going through. Mm. And then I started connecting with more people, other poets and other just followers. And, and I still have a lot of those followers today and they're core people. So I went all 2014, uh, the tail end of 2014 into 2015, writing and still struggling, trying to stay sober. And I'd get a few weeks in and I would make erratic decisions like, let's move. And we'd sell the house and move to some crappy piece of junk that we just like, somebody slapped lipstick on a pig and we were like, yeah, that's the house for us. And meanwhile, the family's like, what are you doing? Mm. And I'm just trying to make things better. Yeah. But not really addressing the main issue. Right. So we moved. And then it was July. It was July 20. Got it. And I look at my tattooed, tattoo. Tattooed on <laughs> July you. July 29, because... I remember I struggled a few days before to make the final decision. But on the 29th of July, I was pouring myself a glass of wine. I was watching the kids outside and and my boy had just started to ride his bike on his own. And I was never thinking he'd ever, never get to that point without me being there. And he did it all by himself. And I looked at that bottle of wine and I just dumped it down the drain. I said, that's it. I'm done. So it wasn't like this massive catalyst moment. I was expecting it to be another going through the desert, surviving snakes. And no. it was a very calm moment. It was a very calm moment. It was 11 o'clock. And wow. I was pouring myself a glass of red wine. <laughs> and I poured that bottle down the drain. And I remember my ex-wife walking into the room going, hey, that's a good bottle of, oh, okay, never mind. Go for it. <laughs> But then I took it another step further. I grabbed all the wine glasses in the house and I just threw them in the garbage. Oh, wow. I had a small collection because I could never collect wine. Mm. It never stayed closed yeah. long enough. Yeah. could never get that wine rack filled. <laughs> it was always like, oh, two bottles here, two bottles gone, right? Right. I could never run back to the liquor store fast enough. And she just let me do my thing and I dumped it all down the drain, all of it. We're talking like 12 bottles of wine. Jeez. I just cut the tops off and poured them out. Yeah. Threw all the wine glasses away, all the corkscrews, all the shot glasses, all the rum glasses. I had a $100 bottle of scotch. I gave it to my brother. I just, because I couldn't pour that down the drain. Yeah, yeah, that'd be hard. <laughs> yeah. So, like, even though I was vilifying alcohol at the time, I could not do that to that scotch. So, mm. I gave it to someone who could enjoy it properly yes. and responsibly. So... I hopped in my car and I went to a recovery meeting. That was the last drink I ever had. I actually didn't have that drink. So I, but my still, my, my day's the 29th of July, 2015. And my poetry changed. My writing began to be focused on recovery, finding mm -hmm. joy again, mm -hmm. um, dealing with the root cause of my addiction, which turned out to be a diagnosis of severe obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. So that at the root, there's a saying in the recovery rooms that alcohol is not the problem. Right. Yes, right? I've heard this. What's going on in your brain is yes. the problem. Yeah, and I've heard this. I had um, Alexis Haynes on my podcast back last year, oh, yeah. and nice. she was really pivotal in the way that I understood addiction because she explained it as the problem being that people were we're treating everything like an addiction to a substance instead of treating it as trauma in an exterior form. Exactly. And it really, when I listened to it and when so many people heard it as well, it really helped them 
understand a lot of people that they were that they had in their life loved ones who were dealing with addiction to start looking at them and humanizing them again and stop seeing them as these people who had addiction and that this addiction was like this big demon in the room and instead got to see them as like a human again a human with trauma that was showing itself externally yeah and that is so important and you grow up in a small bubble in a small community and you look at your town drunks and you go what a loser right mm. brown bagging it and blah 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 but i never brown bagged it i never drank in the morning uh, like that was what i was telling myself but right. i didn't crack open a beer first thing right. in the morning right i didn't have the shakes i didn't have that going on I didn't hide booze and toilets and all this other kind of stuff. So like my identification with what an alcoholic looked like wasn't me, right? I was a six-figure man and Mm -hmm. a nice house and two cars and wearing suits and blah, 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 and friends and blah, and on and on it goes. And I just thought like that just wasn't me until I realized that whole year of 2014 and writing, getting it out, meeting other people on Instagram who were struggling as well, like realizing it, this is a problem, but if I'm having such a hard time quitting, what is the root cause of that? Right. What's causing me to obsess about this? Or what am I covering up? So I was diagnosed in 2015 with intrusive thoughts type of OCD. Okay. So I didn't wash my hands a million times or flick lights and right, like right, right. externalize my OCD. Okay. Uh, but I did like things clean and I like things in a, in their place. Even when I was drinking, I was still cleaning all the time. Wow. Like I was not a messy drunk. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Everything was always cleaned and put away properly. And like, even when I would black out, I would vacuum. It'd be like one o'clock in the morning and I'd be dusting and vacuuming. But when I got sober, what happened was I lost the ability to numb all that so I would worry incessantly. Oh. At the worst, I was following white vans around town, thinking that there were children inside. Oh, no. I would park outside my kid's school and I would wait, like, just make sure no one was going to come with a gun. Did you have, like, catastrophic thinking? All the time. Okay. All the time. I would catastrophize everything. Mm. And it drove my ex-wife away. Yeah. So one of the things that my OCD would do, it would catastrophize what she was doing and mm. where was she? And it made me not be able to trust her, but also just the, just the human race and other people. I always felt like someone was out to get me. And I would wake up with just great anxiety. Like, you know, this feeling suddenly mm-hmm. something, a thought catches you and this burning ball of oil just forms in your gut. Yep. And you go, oh, this is the worst feeling ever. And I got to do whatever it takes to make it go away. And I became obsessed with trying to make this feeling go away. What were you doing to try and get it to go away? Like, what did you use now that you didn't have alcohol? Facts. Facts. You got like obsessive in research. I got, I would research everything. So the child has a fever. Well, I'd get on the internet and I would spend hours looking at what all the possible causes were. That's dangerous. Oh, very dangerous. Everything's wrong with you if you go to the internet. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it always tells me I'm pregnant or I have cancer every day, every day. I'll have a tickle in my throat (laughs) and I'm pregnant with triplets. And that was, that was not the worst of it. I would research. I would, oh, at the worst points in my life, I was following my wife and she wasn't, she didn't, she knew afterwards, but she didn't even know at the time that I was like maybe a few blocks away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I was so afraid. I was so afraid. And yet all of this fright was just driving her away. She said, you got to do something about this. Like, this is not normal. Yeah. So I went to the doctor after 
he gave me the diagnosis. I didn't do anything about it. Then I went back and I said, okay, this is affecting my ability to stay sober. And all the time I was still going to recovery meetings, doing my work, doing step work, doing the 12 steps, all that kind of stuff. Praying, meditating. I was still writing at the time, but this still like this fear was always gripping me. And I, I felt like a need to control everything around me. So he gave me a prescription for a medication and this was early and it was the wrong stuff. And it didn't work out and I put it away and I didn't, again, for another year. Yeah. So I was in my second year of sobriety and I finally said, okay, I got to go back and try something else. Yeah. Because I was, at this point in 2017, I was ready to kill myself. Oh, wow. I didn't make any plans, but I had a lot of thoughts. Yeah. And I think that's that's what's hard for a lot of people is that they decipher that because they didn't make a plan that they don't feel suicidal. And for a lot of people, it's just this this tapping out type of feeling, this giving up. Yeah. And I remember hearing a story at a recovery meeting where a gent said, if anybody in this room is planning to kill themselves, call one person who loves you. Mm. And then if you still feel like doing it the next morning, then go ahead. But <laughs> I remember him telling me this story. So the first thing I did is I called my sponsor, yep, a gentleman who was walking alongside me and told him how I felt and everything I was struggling with. And I knew that everyone around me was fine and didn't see me this way, but it felt like I was everybody's enemy and that everybody was out to get me and nobody loved me and all this other kind of stuff. And wah, wah, wah. And I went on and on and on. And he listened and he listened and he listened. And he said, you know what? Do you need me to come and sit with you? And it's like, no, I, I think I'm better now. He says, you need to go to the doctor again. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know. So I went back and I got a different medication and I've been on it since 2017 and my life is completely different. So this one worked. This one worked, but only because I coupled it with therapy mm. and exercise and yeah. and my writing. And so my therapist said, don't stop writing, keep going, keep going. Good things are going to happen. I published my first book, My Sober Little Moon, and I redid it in 2018 after my after being on the medication for a little while. And I made it better. I made it for bookstores. I made it more, there was more closure in it. Okay. when I had first done it in 2016, I was still- Probably still open-ended, right? Still open-ended. I was was just sober. I put it together hastily. Uh, This time it was a much better job and it represented where I was. I was ready to put the lid on my first two years, my first three years of sobriety. And they always say that after the third year, things get a little bit easier. Mm. Your first year, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm doing this. It's a pink cloud. You're riding it. And then a unicorn comes by and then you destroys your cloud. Then you're trying to fly for the second year. That's very difficult. Second year and the third year were the hardest years of my life because I don't know what it is, but there's also a lot of truth to what post-acute withdrawal syndromes can do. And what's that exactly? Post-acute withdrawal syndromes are... What happens when an addict quits doing their substance? Right. Okay. And it's different for everybody. It depends on how long you drank and how hard you drank or okay. how long you drugged and what you were drugging with. And it's just basically your brain rewiring. Mm. And there's, so there is a scientific and a biological component to recovery that a lot of recovery programs miss out on. And I yeah. wish I'd known about it in my first I've two years. I have never even heard about it. No. So they call it PAUSE. And a lot of treatment centers are starting to preach this, like okay. 
hardcore. Okay, good. You know, and it will explain why you feel crazy and why you get sweats and why mm. your feet are burning hot in the middle of the night and why nothing seems to look like it's right side up and like on and on it goes. And I wish I had known that my first two years because then I would have been able to put a label on it and go, okay, I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did highlight the fact that I had OCD. Okay. And I needed to deal with that. Yep. But post-acute withdrawal syndrome is a real thing. And I think anybody looking to quit needs to go into that with eyes wide open on what it is and what to expect. Well, I like that you said it, it's a bit of a brain rewiring, right? I think that that sounds like it makes a lot of sense when you think of it that way. But I'm curious because your first book was all, so you have three books now. I do. Your first one was all about being sober. And as you know, as you became the poetry bandit and it became a lot less hopeless and a lot more healing. I've talked to a lot of creators who go through this kind of healing journey. And it's a difficult thing when you tie your art to something of a dark time. Mm-hmm. How is that transition now? You're shifting into healing. You're in your, your past your worst years. You're now in year four and year five and you're writing. How has it changed? Poetry is more... Like my first book was very internal. Right, okay. Like almost every piece in there I could cry reading mm. um, about my OCD and about my alcoholism and my anxiety and the depression kind of came and went kind of like a stranger <laughs> in the night. Mm. <laughs> my second book is called You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering and it, and it was the first book deal that I received from a publisher. So Macmillan reached out to me and they offered me a publishing deal because they they loved my story and they loved what I was writing about. And I saw it as an opportunity to heal. Yes. Right? I saw it as an opportunity to address the suffering that I had caused. So the only way that I could heal as an alcoholic in recovery was to address all the pain that I had caused and the suffering that I had caused in myself, but all in the people all around me. That's like a that's a major step, obviously, when you're looking to ensure that you don't drink again. Yeah. You want to get rid of all resentments all the time. And so I really became focused on in my writing, how do I say sorry or how do I close the lid on all of that crap that came along with drinking for that long? And writing was the perfect way to do it. I have a few pieces in there that just deal with they don't make a lot of sense to some people, but they make total sense to me because I remember writing that and going, just f- having a sigh of relief. Going, yeah. oh, I'm so glad I got that out there. Yeah, There's a few pieces in there that really speak to how you filter out feeling guilty about the past, but then embracing the fact that it has changed you and made you ready for the future. I think that's what a lot of people struggle with, especially when you have any type of struggle or hurdle or dark time in your life where you've been hurt. Mm-hmm. So many people, it, it's really hard. I have heard it, I even identified it as like, there's a survivor's guilt to it. Sometimes yeah. there's the guilt of what you did in the past. I mean, we were talking about this at dinner. You don't wish for bad things to happen. You never do, but there is opportunities for good to come from it. Absolutely. And I love that. That's that's kind of what you've done. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Whenever I reflect on like where I started and how I became the poetry bandit, and that, that was something I forgot to touch on is that I changed the name mm. because I felt like I was stealing my love of language and poetry and writing and art back from my addiction. Oh, that's why it's called that. That's why I'm oh, called I the poetry love bandit. That. <laughs> that's incredible. So, yeah. So let's get into a little bit. I have some curious questions about the sober life. Because Fire away. 
you know, it's, uh, I feel like for so many people, there's an uncomfortable factor. You're very approachable about it and you're very chill about it. But how has it been in your social life past this? Like, how do you cope? And I know everybody's story is different. So obviously we're not going to blanket this across everybody's experience and how you can be a support system to everybody. But what's your journey been between, like, did you lose friends stopping drinking and like new friends? How did they treat you knowing you're sober? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. Like when I was drinking, I was the everyman. Like I could be anybody in a room. Yeah. You know, like people talking about oil and gas and I would bullshit my way through that. Right. People talking about what color to paint the house and I, suddenly I would know everything about paint and yeah. like <laughs> just stuff like that. And I was always like, yeah, let's do it. Let's party with those people and these people. I was a social butterfly. I was all over the place and people knew me as that guy. Yeah. Right. And I got, I had a reputation and people liked hanging out with me. And Mm -hmm. I surrounded myself with people who liked to just be spontaneous and let's go out and drink some beer, go for wings, or let's drink five bottles of wine and watch a dumb movie. And, or let's go paint the town red. Like, you know, I surrounded myself with people who were always good to go. Yeah. And then when I quit drinking, one of the things that kind of held me back for such a long time, why I kept relapsing in 2014, was I was really afraid to let that go. Like, who would I become? Who mm. would I be? What was my identity? Yeah. You know, that's why I like deemed myself the hopeless loser because it felt like hopeless to find a way through social life as a sober person. For like, sure. What would be, what, what? Like, is, it's this, it's so central to so much of our oh, social so, life. So, You central. don't realize it. <laughs> Until that is gone. I know like a lot of women, they talk about it during pregnancy. They're like, you don't realize how much it's been central to your world until you're literally not allowed to have it anymore. And you realize girls nights out or a wine night at a wine bar. And, you know, at the center of every holiday table is all the alcohol. The, when you go out with friends, you go to a bar, like it is truly very central. And I've only ever heard it related again to like food, which is a bit of a different thing, but same, like our social gatherings do gather around food and alcohol. Like it's very, there's a FOMO there that is so, it's so thick. It's You can taste it when you walk into a room as a sober person, newly sober and you're seeing everybody do and laugh and do the things that you used to do when you were drinking. Right. There's a FOMO, like you could not believe. But what I ended up doing was I did a controversial thing. I told everybody. Why Everybody is that in my life. Well, a lot of people feel when they get into recovery is to keep that very quiet. Mm. Don't tell too many people. There's going to be judgments made about you. But as my parents will tell you, I never really gave any like two shits about what anybody thought of right. me. Right. I grew up just being the funny guy in the room and I always was finding a way to make an impact or trying to do something different. I always wanted to be different. I didn't want to like fall in line and be like mm. everybody else. And I was not surrounded by people who drank. Right. And, this, and so now I was back in that pool of people that didn't drink and I felt like, oh, I got to do something here that's going to be different. And I kept the poetry stuff quiet. Nobody knew right. until I got my first publishing deal with Macmillan, which was like 2018. Get out. You kept that a secret. I kept of it a all secret. The things. So you just tell everybody else about your recovery, but you didn't tell I about didn't tell your art. I was writing. Oh my god! Because I was a, I was a tiny bit afraid of judgment, but I was also like, this is mine. This is mine. This is for me. And I'm going to keep it for myself for a little while longer. But I realized early on that there would be some major changes. So I prepared myself. I dove into 
the recovery rooms that I was going to, I made friends there. Mm-hmm. I got used to doing things sober, but it took time. Mm. Like it's not a switch that you can make quickly. Yes. But I say to the credit of all my closest friends and my family, they did everything they possibly could to make me feel comfortable. They would have New Year's parties and no one would bring any alcohol. Wow. My parents for my first Christmas didn't have any wine out okay. at all. Okay, yeah. My wife that was good time, for you then? Or very did it, good. Okay, because I always wonder about those also things. also quit drinking too for six months. Okay, because you know, you're always like, what is the right thing? Like you don't want to like, if I don't put out any alcohol, are they going to feel like they've changed the whole room? Like yeah. there's, there's so much. And I think that this is where we get really stumbly as humans is we're not willing to just ask. Like, what yeah. can I do to like support you? Absolutely. And people, when they would ask me like, what can I do? Yeah. I was like, wow, okay. I remember my in-laws at the time would ask me like, is it okay if we do this or that? Like what's too much or what's, you know? Yeah. And then I got to a point where it didn't bother me anymore. Like, I think what everybody needs to realize is when their obsession to drink has left them, mm. and that's a good sign for you that you can start reintroducing certain things from your old social life, but you got to do it. You got to learn how to do it sober, obviously, yeah. right? So go to your old favorite restaurant again. Yeah. Order a club soda and eat your favorite food, right? Yep. You, things will start tasting better to you. Like colors will be brighter. You're going to love the fact that you wake up every morning without a hangover. Right. You remember stuff. There's going to be gonna some gonna real be, good positives in absolutely. this experience. Yeah. Your body's going to change. There are going to be fewer toxins in your body. I was not a very healthy There's person. There's probably a lot of, <laughs> and alcoholism is one of those things, like it shows up so differently in everybody's body. Yeah. But obviously I can imagine like the inflammation or even just like your liver. Oh, yeah. My liver was sending me notices like, hey, if you don't uh, smarten up, I'm out of here. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But slowly but surely, I realized that the, all the things I used to do, all the places I used to go, I can do that. I can do that. I got to a point where I was maybe about six, seven months in to sobriety and solid sobriety 2015 going into 2016 when I realized I can do anything. I can go anywhere. Mm. I can go to that party, right? I just know when my boundary had been yeah. met. Like when I was done, I knew it was time to go. Yeah. When I was too hungry, too anxious, too lonely, or too tired. I called that HALT. And yeah. it's a very popular acronym in, in a lot of recovery rooms. If I was any of those four things and I was in a position where there was lots of alcohol around. Hungry, angry, anxious, uh, anxious. <laughs> angry. lonely, hungry, anxious, lonely, tired. tired. So if I was any one of those, those are your four boundaries. things. Yeah. So if I was any one of those four things at a party, at home, and there was alcohol at home, then I would like say to my ex-wife, I say, can you remove the alcohol from the house? I'm you know, this is not a good thing for me to have here. Right. Okay. Or I'm at a party, so I'm going home. Yep. You know. Remove yourself. Yeah. Remove myself. And that served me in good stead. And today, I think I have a very vibrant social life. It's changed a little yeah. bit in the last. We literally were around Langley today and you knew everybody. Like, <laughs> you know everybody. But I think the one thing that really like stumbles me up, and I think a lot of people probably listening are f- perhaps feeling these same types of fears, is how do we know, like when you're dealing with loved ones and you see people drinking, like how do you know the difference between a casual drinker and somebody who's maybe taking it too far? I don't know if you can like really speak to that, but the fact is you didn't even identify it for yourself because you saw it. Like even in telling the stories, like they sound very similar to drunken stupor kind of things that we hear so many of our friends having. 
what is the differentiating factor? You weren't drinking early in the morning. Yes, you were hiding alcohol and things like that. But for a lot of people, like, I don't know if everybody knows what to look for and what are potentially, like, if you're going to be a support person, how do you even know? Well, I'm a little bit biased, but one of the things that I always look at is, does that person become a completely different person when they Mm, drink? Okay. If they're not who they are when they're sober, doing things that they would never do sober, Right. It's a really good indication that they might be an alcoholic or a binge alcoholic. Okay. So binging is a type of alcoholism. You can look that up. It's, you know, you go weeks without drinking, but yep. you hit that weekend and you're like, okay, lids off, jaws open, pour it down my gullet. Okay. You black out in the first hour or two, but you just keep going. And then Monday rolls around or Tuesday rolls around yeah. and you're sober for another month or whatever. Okay. But that kind of binging like just leads to behavior that's not you. Now, when you say not you, because when everybody's drinking, they're not, they turn into a little, or more of an elevated version of themselves. When you say not you, you mean it in the sense that seems like a lot more out of character. Absolutely. Okay. Like there's, yeah. And that fine line is going to change with the person. Mm. I'm not an expert on identifying alcoholism in other people. For sure. I just know what mine look like. But when people are asking questions like, this is not fun for me anymore, Mm -hmm. or I don't like being around it anymore, when I don't like being around that person when they drink, Mm. um, whether that person drinks a lot or not, it's not the issue. Okay. So those are all things that you can look out for. I think the biggest one is, is like, how do you change or how does that person change when they do drink? They become a danger to themselves or the people around them. Right. I know we're in a day and age where it's really frown upon to judge people and to tell them what to do and these kinds of things. But when it comes to addiction, you don't have to throw that completely out the window. But if you have a friend who's in danger of losing their life or strutting down that road that's going to lead them to ruin, there's nothing wrong with you reaching out to a recovery group that helps people understand how to help other people who might be suffering. I think that's a really good message for a lot of people to hear because you're right. We're hypersensitive. We don't know what to do. So we almost do nothing at all. Or we think that somebody else will do it. Somebody else will step up. It becomes that bystander effect of somebody else is probably doing something. And and we get really fearful. I mean, I had the same conversation with somebody about eating disorder recovery. I'm like, what do you do as a support person? She's like, it's okay to have communication. Mm -hmm. It's okay to say something. And I think that's kind of where we're all so terrified of introducing shame because we know that shame can make a problem worse. But I mean, when you're telling your story, nobody at any point really like shook that shame stick at you. They more or less kind of said like, you might want to take a look at that. Exactly. You might want to consider this. You might want to go like- And that is the best thing that you can say to people. Yeah. And (laughs) it reminds me of a time I came downstairs and there was, obviously I had a bottle of wine out and some wine glasses and my ex-wife and I were sitting on the couch and leaned over to see what she was doing on her laptop and she had it conveniently placed so that I could see what was going on. And she was doing a test for alcoholism. <laughs> oh, wow. And she's like, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. And she left it open there. And I was like, okay, I see what's happening here. Uh, um, so I Subtle. took the test <laughs> and I passed. I got 48 out of 50 bitches. You <laughs> passed was, the test? Oh, yeah. Wait, passed Flying it colors. as in you were an alcoholic? I was an alcoholic. Oh, I thought you were saying like you passed it as in like it showed that you weren't. And oh, I was no. like, how? Yeah. So I was like, wow. Okay. So this thing says I'm a high functioning alcoholic. And it's like, wow. 
I gave myself a high five for high functioning and I yeah. poured myself another glass of wine. Oh my goodness. Oh, I was such an ass and egotistical too. Like humility just wasn't really part of my ammo at the time. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I was a terrible father or a, or a terrible husband all the time. Like, you know, I got my kids out of bed on time and I mm-hmm. dressed them and I gave them a safe place. And, yeah. you know, just when they went to bed, that's when the court came off. Yeah. Right? And yeah. Crazy so, time. but look at you now, <laughs> five, almost five years. Yeah. And you have your three books. So you talked about the first one. Yeah. Um, my first one's called My Sober Little Moon. Okay. Second one is called You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering. And that was, yeah, about poems about the aftermath of when you get sober. The third book, very interesting story. Publisher and I decided, hey, let's do one more book. And I said, I got a really great idea for a book. We're going to go encyclopedia style. So each letter of the alphabet will have seven or eight poems per, okay. per letter. Uh, all starting. Gosh, and then, I'd like to pretend I've ever opened an encyclopedia. <laughs> I, I know, definitely right? Definitely haven't. And I thought, well, maybe this will, maybe some people won't buy because it's got the word encyclopedia on it. But the artwork is amazing, and the publisher did it's an amazing beautiful. job. Yeah, and I wrote it subconsciously, knowing my marriage was going to end. Oh wow! Yeah, so a fourteen-year marriage. I, I felt something was happening. Something was happening this year, twenty nineteen. I said I didn't know what it was, but I felt like. We had started to drift apart mm-hmm. and not in a bad way, but we just became different people. I, yeah. I had let go of her. I was better with my OCD. I was sober. I had let go of controlling people, places, and things. It was a major turning point in my sobriety is when I could just let things happen and not try yeah. and control them at all. Yeah. And so I gave up on trying to control how the marriage was going to play out. And I thought, there's nothing I can do. I mean- you know, I can communicate. And if that person that decides not to communicate or compromise, or I didn't want to compromise, mm. um, we just went in two different directions and we became two different people. And the damage had been done already. Yeah. Right. And that is a reality in many marriages when the alcoholic in the marriage gets sober. And I had accepted that was going to happen. And when I wrote the book, I didn't think I had no plan. I was going to talk to her about this at all. Yeah. And then July rolled around and the conversation came up and it was a very difficult month, but we came to the conclusion that we were going to divorce. Mm -hmm. And the book came out in October. So there's all stuff in there about her being my wife still in the book and everything. So you're reading it and you're going, well, it says in the book that you're married. (laughs) Um, You know, you can belay that. But it came out in October, a couple months after we split up in the and the, and the publisher couldn't change anything by that time. Right. So I read some of the pieces in there, like figure and F in the book. I read that now and I go, holy crap, I totally knew that this was going to end. This is ending. Yeah. There's about seven or eight pieces in the book where I was just like, wow, that's like prophetic. But this is what I love about your poetry and why I really highly encourage people to follow you, but is that it really does hit in the moments of people feeling it, like everyone will connect to a different piece of poetry yeah. because it connects to something very specific within their recovery, their trauma, their heart, whatever it is, because realistically you've written three books in the five hardest years of your life. Absolutely. Through yeah. getting sober, through dealing with that absence, through those really hard years, through your mental health, and then divorce. Like these are 
pillars of what so many people are going through. And yet you took those experiences in a very condensed amount of time, turned them into art, and now people are connecting to it massively. One of the greatest blessings I have through my Instagram page is talking to people almost every day now. Every day. I talk to somebody new who wants help. Yeah. Who needs help or knows someone who, like they said, well, my brother or my sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what to do. Yeah. How do I help them? And I have resources and people that I can point them to. That's amazing. Accounts that I can share with them. I've even helped a couple of people get into treatment, just steering them in the right direction. Yes, exactly. You can't solve that problem, but at the same time, you are somebody who's come through it and you can show them the other side a little bit too. Yeah, you can only, like, the person needs to make that decision for themselves. Yes. Just like I did on that summer day. Looking outside and going, this is crazy. After five warnings and rattlesnakes in a desert. Yeah. You would think that would be more than enough for most people. But mm-hmm. when you're yeah. in it, you're in it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that God shot's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. But everybody like who is sober today that I know and has some storied sobriety, they all got that moment where they're just like, I'm done. Yeah. Right? I'm so blessed and happy that I'm done before I died. Oh, Yeah. Good point. Because not everybody gets that chance. Yes. We are the luckiest. To quote Laura, we are the luckiest, the ones who made the decision before we Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. took us out. And I had an uncle who was taken out by the disease. I have two other uncles who are sober now. And my grandfather died sober. You know, it's a family disease. Yes, I have heard that as well. Yeah. Well, I'm super proud of you. I know you're a fairly new friend, but I mean... What you do is so cool and your your heart is truly for people and for healing and for healing for so much more. And I really appreciate you being so vulnerable about your story because I think for a lot of us, it is a very confusing thing to understand or to identify with. And, and I think there's a lot of people who are going to really connect with that, but more so your poetry is truly, I think, for everybody. So tell everyone where they can find you and we'll just name one more time. So we have the three books are? First book's called My Sober Little Moon. It is my self-published book. That one you can only find on Amazon and in some Indigo stores in Canada. The second book is You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering. And that can be found in any Barnes & Noble, Target, Indigo, right across Canada, the United States. And online and any online bookstore, even Amazon. And then this one's my favorite because it just looks like it's meant to be on a coffee table everywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then uh, Encyclopedia of a Broken Heart, also from the same publisher yep. in all the same bookstores. Okay. Um, but You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering is hitting second print run. So we've sold out the first print run wow, now. Wow, congratulations. Awesome. Yeah. So that one might be harder to find right now, but the third book, Encyclopedia of a Broken Heart, should be very easy to find. It's funny because poetry books are some of my favorite things to have because I always find it interesting. Sometimes I was writing my friend the other day who, Rainbow Salt, who's a poet, and I was was just having a day. She's fantastic. She's fantastic. But I I just literally did like one of these and just like fanned it and like grabbed a page and grabbed and read that poem. That's a beautiful way to do it too. Oh, it's so, and it was was insane because I just wrote her, I texted her immediately afterwards and I was like, It's so wild how life can speak to you that way. And maybe it's just exactly what I need to hear. Maybe I just took it the way I needed to hear it. But somehow either by writing things, like I write a lot myself, but like writing things down or reading things back, it somehow connects something in your brain and in your heart that just makes it all suddenly snap and make sense. Yeah. And I love doing that. So poetry is like some of my favorite books. So I, I love that you just gave me three of them. Yay. So I appreciate it. But you're very welcome. Where can everybody find you on Insta? The underscore poetry bandit. 
So that's... I have a lot of fakers out there. So you got to get the underscore between the... the underscore poetry, P-O-E-T-R-Y, bandit, B-A-N-D-I-T. All that's right. Me. Go check him out. Go check out his poetry. You're funny as hell too. You're a, <laughs> you're a freaking hoot, which is... Uh, yeah. I think that people are, I don't know, like, I don't know. You would. I'm not a sad poet that just sits around and cries all day. Like you think, you think a description of a sober poet who writes about heartbreak and sobriety, you're still, as much as you think it was the alcohol and stuff before, you're still kind of the life of the party. I am so happy. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. <laughs> oh my gosh, you crack me up. Okay, well, thank you so much. And thank you so much. You're a fantastic person. The world needs more ladies like you. Oh, gosh. That, and that people was, in general. I can't even think. What am I saying? Thank you for thanking me. for. Okay. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. This was an incredibly, I think, important conversation to have. And I'm really, really grateful we got to have it today. So share this. Share this with somebody that you think maybe needs to hear it or listen to it a million times over, whatever you need. And check out these books as well. And we will see you next week. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at The Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.